Welcome back to Rejects Book Club, where Constance, a.k.a. me, reads you a chapter a day. The Last Unicorn by Peter S. Beagle. Chapter 4. Like a newborn child, the magician wept for a long time before he could speak. The poor old woman, he whispered at last. The unicorn said nothing, and Smendrick raised his head and stared at her in a strange way. A gray morning rain was beginning to fall, and she shone through it like a dolphin. No, she said, answering his eyes. I can never regret. He was silent, crouched by the road in the rain, drawing his soaked cloak close around his body until he looked like a broken black umbrella. The unicorn waited, feeling the days of her life falling around her like the rain. I can sorrow, she said gently, but it's not the same thing. When Smendrick looked at her again, he had managed to pull his face together, but was still struggling to escape from him. Where will you go now? he asked. Where will you go? Where were you going when she took you? I was looking for my people, the unicorn said. Have you seen them, magician? They are wild and sea white like me. Smendrick shook his head gravely. I've never seen anyone like you, not while I was awake. There were supposed to be a few unicorns left when I was a boy. But I knew only one man who ever saw one. They're surely gone, lady, all but you. When you walk, you make an echo where they used to be. No, she said. For others have seen them. It gladdened her to hear that there had still been unicorns as recently as a magician's childhood. She said, A butterfly told me of the red bull, and the witch spoke of King Haggard. So, I'm going wherever they are to learn whatever they know. Can you tell me where Haggard is king? The magician's face almost got away, but he caught it and began to smile very slowly, as though his mouth had turned to iron. He bent it into the proper shape in time, but it was an iron smile. I can tell you a poem, he said. Where all the hills are lean as knives, and nothing grows, not leaves nor lives, where hearts are solids, boiled beer, Haggard is a ruler here. I will know when I get there, then, she said, thinking that he was mocking her. Do you know any poems about the Red Bull? There are none, Smendrick answered. He rose to his feet, pale and smiling. About King Haggard, <clears throat> about King Haggard I know only what I've heard, he said. He's an old man, stingy as late November. Who rules over a barren county by the sea? Some say that the land was green and soft once before Haggard came, but he touched it and, and it withered. There is a saying among farmers when they look on a field lost to fire or locust or the wind, as blighted as Haggard's heart. They say also that there's no lights in his castles and no fires, and that he sends his men out to steal chickens and bedsheets and pies from windowsills. The story has it that the last time King Haggard laughed, the unicorn stamped her foot. Smendrick said, As for the Red Bull, I know less than I've heard, for I've heard too many tales, and each argues with another. But the bull is real. The bull's a ghost. The bull is Haggard himself when the sun goes down. The bull was in the land before Haggard, or it came to him, or it came with him. It protects him from raids and revolutions. 
and saves him the expense of arming his men. It keeps him prisoner in his own castle. It is the devil to whom Haggard has sold his soul. It is a thing he sold his soul to possess. The bull belongs to Haggard. Haggard belongs to the bull. The unicorn felt a shiver of sureness spreading through her, widening from the center like a ripple. In her mind, the butterfly piped again. They passed down all the roads long ago, and the red bull ran close behind them and covered their footprints. She saw white forms blowing away in the bellowing wind and yellow horns shaking. I will go there, she said. Magician, I owe you a boon, for you set me free. What would you have of me before I leave you? Smendrick's long eyes were gleaming like lights in the sun. Take me with you. She moved away, cool and dancing. She didn't answer. The magician said, I might be useful. I know the way into King Haggard's country and the languages of the lands between here and there. The unicorn seemed very near to vanishing into the sticky mist, and Smedrick hurried on. Besides, no wanderer was ever worse for a wizard's company, even a unicorn. Remember the tale of the great wizard Nikos? Once, in the woods, he beheld a unicorn sleeping in the head, with its head in the lap of a giggling virgin, while three hunters advanced with drawn bows to slay him for his horn. Nikos had only a moment to act. With a sword and a wave, he changed the unicorn into a handsome young man who woke, and seeing the astonished bowmen gaping there, charged upon them and killed them all. His sword was a twisted, tapering design, and he trampled the bodies when the men were dead. And the girl, the unicorn asked, did he kill the girl too? No, he married her. He said that she was an only an aimless child, angry at her family, and that she really just needed a good man, which he was, then and always, for even Nikos could never give him back his first form. He died old and respected. A surf fell to violets, some say. He never could get enough violets. There were no children. The story lodged itself somewhere in the unicorn's breath. The magician did him no service, but great ill, she said softly. How terrible it would be if all my people had been turned to human by well-meaning wizards, exiled, trapped in a burning house. I would sooner find that the Red Bull had killed them all. Where are you going now? Smendrick answered. Few will mean, few will mean you anything but evil, and a friendly heart, however foolish, may be as welcome as water one day. Take me with you, for laughs, for luck, for the unknown. Take me with you. The rain faded as he spoke. The sky began to clear, and the wet grass glowed like the inside of a seashell. The unicorn looked away, searching through a fog for kings, for one king. And through the glittery snow of castles and palaces, for one built on the shoulder of a bull. No one has ever traveled with me, she said. But then, no one's ever caged me before or took me for a white mare or disguised me as myself. Many things seem determined to happen for me for the first time. And your company will surely be not the strangest of them, nor the last. So you may come with me if you like, though I wish you'd ask me for some other reward. 
Smendrick smiled sadly. I thought about it. He looked at his fingers, and the unicorn saw the half-moon marks where the bars had bitten him. But I can never grant you my true wish. There it is, the unicorn thought, feeling the first spidery touch of sorrow on the inside of her skin. This is how it will be to travel with a mortal all the time. No, she replied. I cannot turn you into something you are not, no more than the witch could. I cannot turn you into a true magician. I didn't think so, Smendrick said. It's all right. Don't worry about it. I'm not worrying about it, the unicorn said. The blue jay swooped low over them on that first day of their journey and said, Well, I'll be a squab under glass, and flapped straight home to tell his wife about it. She was sitting on the, sitting on the nest, singing to the children in a dreary drone. Spiders and salvas and beetles and crickets, slugs from the roses and ticks from the thickets, grasshopper snails and the quail egg or two, all to be regurgitated to you. Lullaby, lullaby, swindles and schemes, flying not near as much fun as it seems. Saw a unicorn today, the blue, blue jay said as he lit. No, you didn't. You didn't see any supper, I noticed, his wife replied coldly. I hate a man who talks with his mouth empty. A baby, baby, a unicorn. The jay abandoned his casual air and hopped up and down on the branch. I haven't seen one of those since the time. You've never seen one of those, she said. This is me, remember? I know what you've seen in your life and what you haven't. The jay paid no attention. There was a strange looking party in black with her, he rattled. They were going over Cat Mountain. I wonder if they were heading for Haggard's country. He cocked his head to the artistic angle, which at first had won his wife. What a vision for old Haggard's breakfast, he marveled. A unicorn, coming to call, bold as you please, rat-a-tat-tat on his dismal door. I'd give anything to see, I suppose, the two of you didn't spend the whole day watching unicorns, his wife interrupted with a click of her beak. At least, I understand that she used to be considered quite imaginative in matters of spare time. She advanced on him, her neck feathers ruffling. Honey, I haven't seen her, the blue jay began. And his wife knew that he hadn't and wouldn't dare, but she batted him one anyway. She was one woman who knew what to do with a slight moral edge. The unicorn and the magician walked through the spring over Soft Cap Mountain, and down into a violet valley where apple trees grew. Beyond the valley were low hills, as fat and docile as sheep, lowering their heads to sniff at the unicorn in wonder as she moved among them. After these came slower heights of summer and the baked plains where the air hung shiny as candy. Together, she and Smendrick forded rivers, scrambled up and down brambly banks and bluffs, and wandered in woods that reminded the unicorn of her home. Though, they can never resemble it, having known time. So is my forest now, she thought. But she told herself that it did not matter, that all will be as before when she returned. At night, while Smendrick slept, the sleep of a hungry, footsore magician, the unicorn crouched awake, waiting to see the vast form of the red bull come charging out of the moon. At times, she caught what she was sure his smell a dark, sly reek easing through the night, reaching out to find her. Then she would spring to her feet, 
with a cold cry of readiness, only to find two or three deer gazing in front of her from a respectable distance. Deer love and envy unicorns. Once, a buck in his second summer, prodded forward by his giggling friends, came quite close to her and mumbled without meeting her eyes. You are very beautiful. You're just as beautiful as our mother said. The unicorn looked silently back at him, knowing that he expected no answer from her. The other deer snickered and whispered, Go on, go on. Then the buck raised his head and cried out swiftly and joyously, But I know someone more beautiful than you. He wheeled and dashed away into the moonlight, and his friends followed him. The unicorn lay down again. Now and then in their journey, they came to a village, and there Smendrick would introduce himself as the wandering wizard, offering, as he cried in the streets, to sing for my supper, to bother you just a little bit, or to trouble your sleep ever so slightly and pass on. Few were the towns where he was not invited to stable his beautiful white mare and stay the night. And before the children went to bed, he would perform in the market square by lantern light, he never actually attempted anything great, any great magic, than making dolls and turning soap into sweets. And even this trifling sorcery sometimes slips from his hands. But the children liked him. And their parents were kindly with supper. And the summer evenings were lit and soft. After, ages after, the unicorns still remember the strange chocolate stable smell. And Smendrick's shadow dancing on walls and doors and chimneys in the sleeping light. In the mornings, they went on their way, Smendrick's pocket full of bread and cheese and oranges, and the unicorn pacing beside him, sea white in the sun, sea green in the dark of the trees. His tricks were forgotten before he was out of sight, but his white mare troubled the nights of many a villager. And there were women who woke weeping from dreams of her. One evening, they stopped in a plump, comfortable town where even the beggars had double chins and the mice waddled. Smendrick was immediately asked to dinner with the mayor and several of the rounder councilmen. And the unicorn, unrecognized as always, was turned loose in a pasture where the grass grew sweet as milk. Dinner was served out of doors at a table in the square, for the night was warm and the mayor was pleased to show off his guest. It was an excellent dinner. During the meal, Smendrick told stories of his life as an errant enchanter, filling it with kings and dragons and noble ladies. He was not lying, merely organizing events more sensibly. And so, his tales of taste, of truth, even through the canny councilmen. Not only they, but all manner of folk passing in the street leaned forward to understand the nature of the spell that opened all locks, if properly applied. And there was not but one but lost breath at the sight of the marks of magician's fingers. Souvenir of my encounter with a harpy, Smendrick explained calmly. They bite. And were you never afraid? A young girl wondered softly. The mayor made a shooing noise at her, but Smendrick lit a cigar and smiled at her through the smoke. Fear and hunger have kept me young, he replied. He looked around the circle of dozing, rumbling councilmen and weak wily at the girl. The mayor was not offended. It's true, he sighed, caressing his dinner with linked fingers. We do live a good life here. Or, if we don't, I don't know anything about it. I sometimes think that a little fear, a little hunger, might be good for us. 
sharpen our souls, so to speak. That's why we always welcome strangers with tales to tell and a song to sing. They broaden our outlook, set us looking inward. He yawned and stretched himself, gurgling. One of the councilmen suddenly remarked, My word, look at that pasture. Heavy heads turned on nodding necks, and all saw the village's crow, cows and sheep, and horses clustered at the far end of the field, staring at the magician's white mare, who was placidly cropping the cool grass. No animal made a noise. Even the pigs and geese were as silent as ghosts. A crow called once, far away, but his cry drifted through the sunset like a single cinder. Remarkable, the mayor murmured. Most remarkable. Yes, isn't she? The magician agreed. If I were to tell you some of the offers I've had for her. The interesting thing, said the councilman who had spoken first, is they don't seem to be afraid of her. They all have an air of awe, as though they were doing her some sort of reverence. They see what you've forgotten to see. Smendrick had drunk his share of red wine, and the young girl was staring at him with both eyes sweeter and shallower than a unicorn's eyes. He thumped his glass on the table and told the smiling mayor, She is a rarer creature than you dare to dream. She's a myth, a memory, a will-o'-the-wish, a will-o'-the-wisp. If you remembered, if you hungered, his voice was lost in a gust of hoofbeats and the clamor of children. A dozen horsemen, dressed in autumn rags, came galloping into the square, howling and laughing, scattering the town folks like marbles. They formed a line and clattered around the square, knocking over whatever came in their way and shrieking incomprehensibly brags and challenges to no one in particular. One rider rose up in his saddle, bent his bow, and shot the weathercock off the church spire. Another snatched up Smendrick's hat, jammed it on his own head, and rode off roaring. Some swung screaming children to their saddle bows, and others contented themselves with wineskins and sandwiches. Their eyes gleamed madly in their shaggy faces, and their laughter was like drums. The round mayor stood fast until he caught the eye of one of the raiders' leaders. Then he raised one eyebrow. The man snapped his fingers, and immediately the horses were still and the ragged men as silent as the village animals before the unicorn. They put the children gently on the ground and gave back most of the wineskins. Jack Jingley, if you please, the mayor said calmly. The leader of the horsemen dismounted and walked slowly toward the table where the councilmen and their guests had dined. He was a huge man, nearly seven feet tall, and at every step he rang and jangled because of the rings and bells and bracelets that were sewn into his patched jerkin. Evening, Your Honor, he said in gruff chuckle. Let's get to this business, the mayor said. I don't see why you can't come riding in quietly like civilized people. Ah, uh, the boys don't mean no harm, Your Honor, the giant grumbled good-naturedly. Cooped up in the greenwood all day? They needs a little relaxing and a little catharsis, like... Well, well to it, huh? With a sigh, he took the wizened bag of coins from his waist and placed it in the mayor's open hand. There you be, your honor, said Jack Jingley. It ain't much, but we can't spare no more than that. The mayor poured his coins into his palm 
and pushed at them with his fat finger, grunting. It certainly isn't much, he complained. And it, ev- it isn't even half as much as last month's take. And that was shriveled enough. You're a woeful lot of freebooters, aren't you? It's hard times, Jack Jingley answered sullenly. We ain't to blame if travelers have no more gold than we. You can't squeeze blood out of a turnip, you know. I can, the mayor said. He scowled savagely and shook his fist at the giant outlaw. And if you be holding out on me, he shouted, if you're feathering your own pockets at my expense, I'll squeeze you, my friend. I'll squeeze you to a pulp and peel, and I'll let the wind take you. Be off now, and tell your tattered captain. Away, villains. As Jack Jingley turned away, muttering, Smendrick cleared his throat and said hesitantly, I'll have my hat, if you don't mind. The giant stared at him, out of bloodshot buffalo eyes, saying nothing. My hat, Smendrick requested for a fir- in a firmer voice. One of your men took my hat and said it would be wise for him to return it. Wise is it? grunted Jack Jingley at last. And who are you, pray, that knows what wisdom is? The wine was still leaping in Smendrick's own eyes. I am Smendrick the magician, and I make a bad enemy, he declared. I'm older than I look, and less amiable. My hat? Jack Jingley regarded him for a few minutes longer, Then he walked back to his horse, stepped over it, and sat down in the saddle. He rode forward until he was hardly a beard's thickness from waiting Smendrick. Now then, he boomed, if you be a magician, do some tricksky. Turn my nose green. Fill my saddlebag bags with snow. Disappear my beard. Show me some magic or show me your heels. He pulled a rusty dagger from his belt and dangled it by the point whistling maliciously. The magician is my guest, the mayor warned, but Smendrick went sol- said solemnly, very well, on your head be it. Making sure with the edge of his eye that the young girl was watching him, he pointed at the scarecrow, scarecrow crew grinning behind their heels and said something that rhymed. Instantly, his black hat snatched itself from the fingers of the man who held it and floated slowly through the darkening air silent as an owl. Two women fainted, and the mayor sat down. The outlaws cried out in children's voices. Down the length of the square sailed the black hat, as far as a horse trot. When it dipped low and scooped itself full of water, then, almost invisible in the shadows, came drifting back, apparently aiming straight for the unwashed head of Jack Jingley. He covered himself with his hands, muttering, No, no, call it off and even his own men snickered in anticipation. Smendrick smiled triumphantly and snapped his fingers to hasten the hat. But as it neared the outlaw leader, the hat's flight began to curve gradually at first and then much more sharply as it bent towards the councilman's table. The mayor had just enough time to lunge to his feet before the hat settled itself completely on his head. Smendrick ducked in time, but a couple of the closer councilmen were slightly spattered and the roar of laughter, varying voluntary, that went up. Jack Jingley leaned from his horse and swept up Smendrick the magician, who was trying to dry off the sputtering mayor with a tablecloth. I misdoubt you'll be asked for encores, the giant bellowed in his ear. You best come with us. He threw Smendrick face down across his saddle bow and galloped away, followed by his shabby cohorts. 
Their snorts and belches and guffaws lingered in the square long after the sound of hoods had died away. Men came running to ask the mayor if they should pursue to rescue the magician, but he shook, she, he shook his wet head, saying, I hardly think that will be necessary. If our guest is the man he claims to be, he should be able to take care of himself quite well. And if he isn't, why then? An imposter taking advantage of our hospitality has no claim on us for assistance. No, no, never mind about him. Creeks were running down his jaws to join the brooks of his neck and the river of his shirt front. But he turned his placid gaze toward the pasture, where the magician's white mare glimmered in the darkness. She was trotting back and forth before the fence, making no sound. The mayor said softly, I think it might be well to take good care of our departed friend's mount, since he evidently, evidently prized her so highly. He sent two men to the pasture with instructions to rope the mare and put her in the strongest stall of his own stable. But the men had not yet reached the pasture gate when the white mare jumped the fence and was gone into the night like a falling star. The two men stood where they were for a long time, not heeding the mayor's commands to come back, and neither ever said, even to the other, why he stared at the magician's mare so long. But now and then after that, they laughed with wonder in the middle of some very serious events. And so, they came to be considered frivolous sorts. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> See you tomorrow. Peace out.